Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Hope that everybody is doing well. Thought I would um, share, since so many have asked, and maybe a few that I have not even spoken to have inquired just how Victoria is doing. She is currently at home, and we're somewhere between um, three and four days overdue, upwards to a week, depending on which uh, due date was accurate from the ultrasound. And so she is uh, due at any moment, and so I actually have my cell phone with me, just so in case you're wondering right here, in case she would call, I have it uh, on vibrate, and we'll um, certainly uh, jump right on to that call if I should receive one. Um, yeah, I, I know that Huey's breathing a sigh of relief, right? We didn't get the call at midnight last night, and and um, so thankful. I think that the Lord is um, even going to open up uh, the possibility that she might even need to be induced. So you can uh, keep us in your prayers as that goes. We'll find out more on Tuesday when we have a doctor's appointment then. So she's actually uh, taking care of uh, Sophia today who has got some some stuff going on with her and with her back pain. She also just wanted to get some additional rest. So um, she does send her greeting. All right, well, we can officially get started now. And... Um, Last week we had a, a message entitled uh, Protecting Your Purity, and today is actually going to be part two of a message relating to our purity. In a news article released March 16th of last year, it had this to say, Ten years ago this Tuesday, the U.S. invaded Iraq, and by any count, and there have been many, the toll has been devastating. So far, about 4,400 U.S. troops and more than 100,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed. And the combined costs of the war come to an astounding $2 trillion, including future commitments like veteran care. So where do we stand today? Stephen Hadley was the National Security Advisor under President George W. Bush from 2005 to 2009 and part of the White House team that helped sell the war to the public. Hadley had this to say, the cost of getting Iraq back under control was too high in terms of dollars, in terms of lives of Americans, and in terms of lives of Iraqis. Looking back, Hadley tells NPR's Jackie Lydon, everyone, not just the White House, was wrong in citing Saddam Hussein's alleged stock of weapons of mass destruction as a reason for the invasion. Republicans thought he had them. Democrats thought he had them. The Clinton administration thought that he had them. And the Bush administration thought that he had them. Hadley says, we were all wrong. Hadley says that the initial invasion was a success, but what followed took longer and cost an enormous amount in terms of both lives and money. He stands by the judgment, however, that Saddam was a great threat to the U.S. and the region. Regarding the human toll on both sides, Hadley admits that clearly the situation got away from us. And so you might be intrigued, why am I sharing this article with you? And if you'll allow me uh, to explain, politics aside, there are some amazing parallels between physical war that takes place and spiritual war that takes place in the lives of a believer. Allow me just to share three parallels. First, wars are costly, and casualties of war 
are real with serious consequences. We saw that in the article, and we see that in the church today. Spiritually, there are great consequences when sin comes in. Secondly, wars can last a long time, and it's easy to forget that we're at war unless you or someone you love is engaged in battle. And I was even convicted about, after reading that article, just how, the extent to which we've been at war for, for a decade and um, really rebuked in my own heart about how little I have spent in prayer for the soldiers overseas, specifically the Christians that are overseas engaged in battle who carry a tremendous weight, a gospel weight, to see God save brothers and sisters before their lives come to an end. And third, wars involve deception. And the enemy is always plotting the next attack. And that's true overseas, and that's true in the realm of the church. There's always another plot. There's always a next attack that's coming. And why am I sharing this with you? Hear me loud and clear, church. The Christian life is a war. The Christian life is a war. So often believers can lose sight of this reality and we can even be tempted to think otherwise. And we live in a lust-filled world that constantly entices us to, with distractions and blinds us from this spiritual reality that we are indeed at war. And Scripture's filled with descriptive language that reflects this reality. The Apostle Paul shares this in Romans 7, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Then in 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, Paul had this to say in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Then in Ephesians 6, Paul shared that we're to put on spiritual armor. We're called to put on the helmet of salvation, to take up the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness, right? the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, to shod our feet with the gospel. And why? Why would we need to put on the spiritual armor? Because we're engaged in spiritual war. And all of this is before Paul got to the end of his life when he wrote his last epistle. And he shared with Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-7, I have fought the good fight. Well, last week's exhortation on sexual purity encouraged us by allowing us to see the big picture. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18-20, through 20, for those of you who were here, really provided for us a strategy and in wars, there's actually two things that take place. There's strategic planning, and then there's tactical planning. And strategic planning or strategy always involves the big picture, okay? Tactical planning involves life in the trenches, the day-to-day -day life. And so last week's message really focused more on strategy of the big picture, while this week's message will be more tactical in nature,
And this will be our second part, as I mentioned earlier, on protecting your purity. And the title is this, Engaging in Battle. And we're going to spend our time focusing on two very instructive verses. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll be reading these two verses from the ESV. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the second opportunity that I've had to preach a message from the book of 1 Peter. And if you recall in the last message, I provided a little bit of background. But for those that weren't here, um, it will help us and serve us well if we consider the context and the purpose for this passage. And after all, it's not very common for us in our English vernacular to hear words like aliens or sojourners, right? Don't uh, hear those words too often. And the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who were suffering horrific persecution in the first century church. And it was, frankly, a suffering that was so awful that in many ways it's foreign to us. And in 1 Peter 1.1, the Apostle greets them this way, Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The persecution was so strong, it was so real, that it was very dangerous. They couldn't even stay in one place. And if we could simplify the background of this book into one statement, it would be this. It's addressing scattered Jewish Christians who were being imprisoned, tortured, and killed. And the Lord led Peter to write this letter to encourage them in the persecution that they were facing. And he was encouraging them to stand firm in their faith. And 1 Peter reflects a consistent persecution of Christians throughout all of Asia Minor. Okay? And this condition, as I mentioned in the last sermon, only intensified when Nero in AD 64... In July, specifically of A.D. 64, set the city on fire so that he could burn it down and rebuild what he wanted to build. And who did he use as his scapegoat? The Christians. The Christians were said to be responsible. And certainly, being scattered as aliens out of their homes, away from their comfort zone, would allow them to be even more enticed by worldly lusts of pleasure in the midst of such discomfort and challenge, harsh treatment. Our small passage today only consists of two verses, but they're going to serve us in great measure. And God reveals that our internal battles produce external testimonies. And to see this clearly, we're going to look at both of these verses very closely. Verse 11 focuses on the internal battles or waging war on the inside. And verse 12 reveals external testimonies or what the effect of that is, if you will. 
So let's get started with verse 11 and point number one, which is this. Engage in battle on the inside. And this is the tactical approach that God would have us see. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And beloved is an endearing term that God uses to express His ongoing love and regular care for us as believers. And we even got to sing that in worship just moments ago. And God knows the war of this life. And God knows the individual battles that every single person in this room will face over the course of their life. And it's why we can find great comfort when we see a verse like Hebrews 4.15 that says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Lord knows our battleground well. And so our verse continues, Beloved, I urge you, I exhort you, your translation might say, I beseech you, and that's not very common in our English today, urge or beseech, but what it really is saying is, I'm pleading with you, I'm begging you as sojourners and exiles. Or maybe your translation says aliens and strangers. And God had Peter use these terms to remind believers then, and consequently, consequently they remind us today that this earth that we're living upon is not our home. And all this is leading up to the command that we're going to receive in just a moment. But I, I wanted us to help understand and to see why these terms specifically were employed. Exiles and aliens. And what they're intended to fully communicate. Have you ever watched a documentary about war? Or seen maybe a movie that actually portrays an actual um, um, real-life war mentality that's realistic? And, And soldiers want something. If you go around and you ask them, what do you want? If you could have one thing, what do you want? And what do they always say? What do they always say? I just want to go home. Their, their heart is to be at home. And God wants us as Christians to see and understand this reality as well. See, the, the soldiers understand that the battlefield is not their home. It's not. And as believers, we need to understand the same thing. This battlefield that we're on, that we're living every day in our life, this is not our home. We're exiles. We're sojourners. We're passer, passerbys. We're just, we're just coming through. We're here for a season. And that season will come to an end. And God wants, to know, wants us to know and recognize the reality that He will call us home off the battleground. And He'll receive us into His eternal arms. But until then, while we're still here, He calls us as soldiers, He calls us as believers to pick up our weapons. To engage in battle. And He wants us dressed in the full armor of His protection. 
And he commands us to do something then in verse 11. It continues, Beloved, I urge you, I exhort, I plead, I beg with you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. Or your translation might say fleshly lusts. God is reminding us for good reason. It's easy to get conditioned when, when, when soldiers um, get relaxed on enemy territory overseas, that's when they become vulnerable. When all of a sudden you don't start putting all your gear on. When all of a sudden it's a warm day and you want to know what? I'm not going to put on my bulletproof vest. It's too hot, right? You start to remove protection. And that's when you become vulnerable. And it's so fitting for us to remember this as believers. And the Greek word translated to abstain literally means to be distant from. And it's a present tense command. And it's active. And I've talked to you about this before. Whenever there's a present tense active command in the Scripture, we can actually translate it, make it your habit. Make it your habit to abstain. The Lord wants us continually distancing ourselves from evil desires or lusts in the heart that continually draw us towards the temptations of this world. Heart work. It's right here. It's heart work and it's hard work. Okay? I've said that before too and I'll continue to say it. Heart work is hard work. And we're actually being called to fight. And in the sport of boxing, there's actually an aspect of the sport that will help us here. Probably, I don't know how many big boxing fans we got in the, the rooms. Fighting fans, probably not many. Maybe John Ree and a few other guys. Sorry, John. He and I have talked about MMA and stuff. But I'll, I'll tell you, boxing will serve us well here. There's a, there's a technique or a strategy that's called infighting. And you know what they do? When boxers are together and they're, they're, they're close, what they do is they have to throw punches. They throw punches to, to try to separate and create space between them and the person that they're fighting. And of course, there's this point scoring system that's going on as well. But for illustration purposes, what they're trying to do is to create space. They're trying to create space. Why? Because when I throw a punch and I have somebody up against me like this, and the punch travels this distance, right? From here to here, that's a short punch. All it's going to do is get them to back off a little bit. But as space is created, and you can generate power, right? You can generate power. Is a punch that's thrown from this distance going to be more powerful than a punch thrown from this distance? Yes. Good illustration for us. And some boxers actually employ a strategy of trying to smother their opponent, especially if their opponent has more power than they do. And you know what they do? They actually start to lean on them, and they'll even put their hands on their shoulders, and they'll try to weigh them down. They'll try to fatigue them. They'll try to make them tired. And oftentimes, this is the same strategy that the evil lusts of our heart employ. They surface when we're tired when we're vulnerable. But this is exactly when we need to be the most prepared to fight in the Lord's strength. Or as Ephesians 6.14 
reminds us to stand firm in the strength of his might. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. Ephesians 6.14, right there with the spiritual armor. To stand firm in the strength of his might when it comes to facing the evil lusts of our hearts. And just like a true fighter, we need to resist. We need to be throwing punches and create space and distance from the evil lusts or deceitful desires. Now, by default, many people can equate fleshly lusts to sexual lusts. And though fleshly lusts also include sexual lusts, they're not limited to being sexual in nature. In fact, 1 John 2.16 is very helpful, and it offers us three categories of lusts. A familiar passage to many in the room. The lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes. And the lusts of pride. And these deceitful desires or wicked lusts, really, in the end, they're lies. And I'll go so far as to say this. Anytime that you see lust in an evil context, you can replace that word with lies. Okay? Because that's what they are. There's something that's trying to deceive us when they surface. The lusts or the lies of the eyes in our hearts say that we need to look a certain way in order to be acceptable or to be beautiful according to the world's standard. When in 1 Samuel 16.7, God says that I don't look at the outward appearance, right? As man looks, but I look directly where? He looks directly here at the heart. And every person is already beautiful because according to my Bible, same when you're holding Genesis 1.26, that we're all beautiful because we were created in the beautiful image of God. But the lies or the lusts of the eyes tell us that that is not good enough. And the lies of the flesh in our hearts say that it's okay if something feels good, then pursue it and completely dismiss the consequences that's the lie of the flesh that to think about the the flesh and that there's a complete disconnect right there's no connection spiritually to the things that you do in the in the flesh that's the lie there's no connection right it's just the flesh when god says walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the lies of the flesh in Galatians 5.16. Third, we have the lies of pride in our hearts, which can encourage us to have an elevated view of self and to esteem ourselves. While God says not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but each one is to think so as to have sound judgment. Romans 12.3. What dangers do fleshly lies or evil deceptions present verse 11 provides the answer right here for us they continually wage war against your soul this is an internal battle this is a tactical battle and it's starting at ground zero right here in our hearts and the command that we're giving that we're given is calling us to distance ourselves from those fleshly lusts 
to be separated from believing those lies. And then we're told why. Because they wage war against the soul. And soul in this context is actually talking about the entirety of the person. It's not just a part of the person. It's actually talking about the, the, they wage war against your entire person. This is our reality. We live in a fallen world. And there's a war going on. And it involves me. We're talking about World War me. Not World War III. The world, war, and me. And narrowing it down even further from me, it's, it's going right at the heart level. And all the battles that you and I will ever face, they need to be engaged at the heart level. And so we must be engaged to battle. And if you'll turn with me to James chapter 1 real quick, I want us to see something um, that will really bless us as we try to understand the deception that comes with the loss. And if you look at James 1.13 through 1.15, and we have a PowerPoint slide that I'm going to go ahead and uh, put up so that we can see that in just a moment. But in James 1.13, it, it basically says this, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But then what does this go on to say? But each one is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Or if you have an ESV Bible, it will say lured right there. Lured by his own lust. Then it says this, Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay? And our PowerPoint slide is right here for us to see. And basically, there are some terms that are going to be on the PowerPoint slide. And it's going to look like this. You're going to have um, deceitful desires right here, okay? And, and really what they're called, they're, they're, they're called lies, okay? They're lies from the enemy. And then what those lies do is they make us vulnerable to the temptations, right? To the temptations that are around us. And there's a logical progression here, and I, I want us to see this. I don't want you to miss it. And that will get... There's a battle in the heart, and, and it's actually in uh, black font. So um, it was evil desires, and so that, that, it's right there. Evil desire, desires and lust, and then it, it makes us vulnerable to temptation. Okay? And then it, when it's accomplished, it produces sin. And there is a, a progression here, and, and I want you to see this because... Fundamentally, we make mistakes all the time. I, I, I do this, have done this, and, and, and it's, I see this going on in the lives of Christians that we, we, we're always trying to do battle at this level. We're, tro- we're always trying to deal with the temptations, and we're always trying to deal with sins. 
And the reality is this, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing necessarily. I'm not. But really when we're talking about having already engaged in sin, we've already been defeated. We've already yielded or bent the knee to a temptation. There's, there's been a lie that has surfaced in our heart that has arisen. And we believe that lie. And then a temptation came along and it joined up. It literally conceived with that temptation. And when it conceived, it gave birth to something. And the birth was sin. And I wanted us to encourage everybody in the room to take an opportunity to, to rewind the tape, if you will. We're, we're going to rewind the tape and, and go a little bit backwards as we think about the sin in our lives. And in the football world, we did something all the time. And we watched the game film and the practice film, okay? And there was an expression that took place in the professional setting anyway, and it was very common to, to, to hear it in the film room. The film don't lie. The film don't lie. You, what you did and what was recorded happened. It's right there. And sometimes it allows you to see uh, the successes that you have and how you make progress. And then sometimes what does the film do? It allows us to see where we fail and where we fall short. And our lives are continually being recorded on God's camera. They are. He's, he's, he's recording every day, every moment. We're, we're, we're being recorded on God's camera. Romans 14.12 says this explicitly. It doesn't mention camera, but it says, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this isn't the great white throne of judgment talking to unbelievers who are going to be condemned. This is actually speaking to believers. And each of us is going to sit, God, sit down with God and we're going to watch the game film of our lives together. And so do you think it might be, I don't know, maybe a little wise to rewind the tape occasionally? Maybe reflect a little bit? Maybe see the progress that we're making so that we can give the best possible account to him because he's going to give us reward. He's going, to get, he's going to reward us. And you do not want to lose out on that reward. And you know what the punishment is because people are curious about that. The punishment is actually having reward that you will want that will be withheld. That's it. That's, that's what's going to happen in that moment. Well, maybe your struggle, if you're like me, is with patience. Or you're often tempted to be impatient, which leads you to sin by how you talk or react to people. And God commands us to be patient, right? He does. It's also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so in our flesh, it is not natural for a person to be patient. And I created a scenario. Imagine this. Your friend is supposed to pick you up at 5 p.m. 
after work. You wait for them outside starting at 5 p.m. to get picked up. Before you know it, it's 5.20 p.m. and you have not seen them. They did not call or text you and they did not answer your call or text you um, to let you know that they're going to be late. And then you initiate a call or maybe send a text and you get no response. And before you know it, it's 5.30. And then it's 5.40. And then they're officially 40 minutes late. What are some of the lies that our hearts can begin to tell us in moments like that? What are some of the things that surface, right, in our sin nature, deceptions and lies that start to come out of our hearts in situations? So-and-so doesn't care about having to make me wait. I mean, why wouldn't they have just at least called? I mean, just, just, just called, right? Just called to, to, to let me know. Now I'm not going to be able to I'm going to be late for my dinner appointment. I'm not going to get to the gym. I'm not going to get to the bank before it closes. I'm not going to make it to the dry cleaners on time. Why haven't they called me? This is just ridiculous. Why haven't they called? And there's a war. There's a war. There's a war going on in your heart in moments like that. And it happens every day to us all the time, and it looks differently. The battles look differently. And there are lies that want to surface and all they do is encourage us to focus on ourselves and really produce a sinful response. To yield to temptation. This is spiritual warfare. This right here, what I'm describing to you may not um, live up to the, the mystical dynamic of what you um, maybe in your mind have thought of being spiritual warfare. And granted, there are things that are going on with demonic forces in, in a realm which we cannot see, but God sees it, and so we can entrust that to Him, right? He can handle those battles. He's a big boy. He'll, he'll, he'll take care of it. But the spiritual war that's taking place with us, we're, we're to deal with that in His strength, standing firm in His might, Right? We have to deal with the war that's going on, and it's a battle for truth. That is what spiritual warfare is. It is a battle for the truth. In the lies and moments, just like we were describing, we have to learn to confront them. And God wants us to battle against them by distancing those lies from us. We're going to talk more about how to do this under our second point. But before we move on, I want to make sure that I also have an opportunity to speak to sexual lust as well because that was really the focus in last week's sermon. It talked about our sexual purity and warned us of the dangers of sexual immorality. And it called us to flee, right? Fuego in the Greek. Flee. Get out of there. Run for safety from any form of sexual immorality. And the Greek word that we said was uh, for sexual immorality was porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. Whenever we encounter any temptation related to porneia, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to flee. We're supposed to run. And you may recall the quote that I even shared with you from one commentator last 
week when he was talking about sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't stand there and pray about what to do. Don't get near it. If it comes knocking, run for your life. That's exactly what we do. And this is just as true this week as it was last week. And that's what God would have us do. But I need to clarify something. When those temptations, that's what we're talking about. Those are the temptations of porneia. It's the temptation and the sin. When anything in that realm comes into the picture, we have to flee. But there are also lusts related to this area in the form of lies in our hearts. And God wants us to deal with those. We need to engage in battle with the sexual lusts in the heart as well. And there's actually a really good book written by Joshua Harris, and it says, Sex is not the problem, lust is. And if you don't own a copy of that, whether you disciple someone who's maybe struggled in this area, or you struggle, have struggled with this, this is, I would, I would say everyone should own that book. That is a, a great book. You know what it includes in there? It lists all the lies, all the lies that surface in the heart for both men and women who are prone to believing these certain lies. It deals directly with the deceptions. The lies like it's, it's really no big deal. Or everybody, rationalization, the lie of rationalization. Everyone struggles in this area. Everyone struggles, right? Or or better yet, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied if you act on that lust. Evil lusts betray us, and there's nothing good that can ever come by listening to them. Nothing. And I want to share a biblical example. Turn with me to, um, I didn't get to share this last week, but it's, it, it's actually very fitting for this week. Second Samuel, if you'll turn there with me, Second Samuel chapter 13. And I'm reading from my NASB Bible, starting in verse 7. Okay? Yeah, see this. We're going to read uh, 7 through 15. You're going to see the betrayal of lust in the heart, what, what happens. Then King David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took dough kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and dished them out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And so Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. Okay, stop just real quick. I've got to give you the context here. So she's not... She's not being foolish here. He's actually, he's, he's actually pretending to be sick in the context, right? He's actually plotted this, and he's pretending like um, he, um, he's sick, and you know, she's not thinking anything sexually. I mean, it, this, is, this is her half-brother. She wants no, no desire or part of that plot. She, she'll even say that in just a little bit, but she, she's not foolish either. She was just trying to minister to him through what she had brought to him. and says in verse 11, when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, 
Come, lie with me, my sister. And this is exactly the same expression in the Hebrew that was used with Potiphar and Potiphar, uh, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? She said, lie with me. This was a, a deliberate call to say, sleep with me. But she answered him and said, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you... You will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And so she's, she's talking, saying, you know, go talk to the king, and then maybe, maybe this is, is possible, but trust me, she wasn't having it. She's just trying to get him to, to release her. However, he would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He raped her. Right here in this passage. And he acted on his lusts. Okay? He, he allowed the temptation of... He, he had a, a lie in his mind, one, to say that this was okay. Okay? That this was no big deal. All the lusts that Joshua Harris breaks down for you in, in, the, in the book. He believed the lie. She came. He actually even plotted the temptation total foolishness, and then did what? Fulfilled that lust. And it was so satisfying. It was so gratifying for him. It was wonderful. It was so wonderful. Look at verse 15, what it says. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go away. It was disgrace. It was shame. And friends, that is exactly what lust does every single time. On any level, whether it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the lust of pride, they, they lie, they get us to believe that there's something that they're going to be able to bring to the table that's going to satisfy when it is not. And the consequences and the price that Amnon paid for that engagement with lust eventually cost him his life. And he was murdered as a result. And the lie of his heart promised him something that it could never deliver on. Lust promised to satisfy when they cannot and never will. And we need to distance ourselves from them. To protect our purity, we must engage in battle at the heart level. When soldiers are engaged in war, and this is true physically as well as spiritually, their lives are really reduced to three options. Ready for these? One, they can fight. Two, they can try to hide. Or three, they can surrender. That's it. Those are the only options that a soldier on the field of battle has and the only options that we have as believers. Fight, engage in battle, hide, or surrender. And for application, we can easily turn these questions um, or make these options, excuse me, into questions. Fighting. How does my life speak to unbelievers? What evidence of fighting against my fleshly lust 
do other people see? And we're going to see that they, they should see evidence, right? They, they should see evidence. We'll see that under the second point. Hiding. Is there anything that I'm tempted to hide from others? Or pretend that God cannot see? Am I transparent when talking to others about my lusts and my battles and my struggles with sin? Number three, surrendering. Am I surrendering to lusts and temptations in any area of my life? Am I surrendering? Am I just waving the white flag? And you know what? This is what the world does, right? That's why you'll, you, that, that's why the Grammys, that's why they can have 30 people um, get married and come up and celebrate, celebrate the, um, um, their idea and their concept of marriage and say that it's a good thing. They can celebrate that. It's a surrender. It's not a battle. There's no battle there. It's surrendering. And by God's grace and in His goodness, when He calls us to faith, that's one of the calculated costs that we're called into the arena to do battle. And if you're someone today, maybe you're here today and you're just like, man, I have just really been struggling. I, I've been spiraling and, and, and I, I call it circling the drain. You know, it's just like just spinning in circles, right? It's like I, um, I know that I need to, to stop doing this or that and, and I'm just spinning in circles. I'm like a dog just chasing my tail. I stop and then it seems like I'm, you know, it's that battle, right? Paul even talks about this in, in, in clear terms in, in Romans 7. But you know what Paul knew? Paul knew that he needed Christ. Paul knew that he needed to repent of his sin and that he needed to trust in Christ completely. And, and to follow Christ and to have access to the Spirit in order to engage in battle. And it could be, okay? It could be that if you're someone in your life where sin just keeps happening over and over and over and over again, it's, it's worth taking the look. It's worth rewinding the tape so far in your life to say, am I truly, did I truly commit and trust and hand over my life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I born again? Is my heart changed? Do I have new desires from within to live for Him? Well, our first point is finished, and our second point won't take anywhere near as long. But our first point was this, engage in battle on the inside. And there's a second point, that is found under um, our second verse in 1 Peter 2. If you'll turn back there with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And when we engage in battle on the inside at the heart level, then this allows us to reveal the glory of God on the outside. Our internal struggles lead to consequences that are seen externally. And here, Peter shares the positive impact 
that a Christian testimony can have on outsiders. And recall who he's writing to, right? These are, these are Christians facing a beatdown with persecution. Harsh, harsh treatment. A harsh reality that they're facing. And if any group would have been tempted to retaliate in the flesh, it would have been the people to whom Peter was writing. And not only does God have Peter instruct them to keep distant from those fleshly lusts that are going to wage war against the soul, but God also used Peter to give them this present tense active command that says, make it your habit to keep your conduct excellent. Beautiful. Or you could say praiseworthy. And I want to go back to the PowerPoint. Our next slide will show this, and it's actually going to pull it up. And oh, it's in white. Yes, so we can see it even better. Those in the back row. Lesson learned on PowerPoint. <laughs> Dark text can be hard to read from afar. Okay. And, and I want you guys to, to, to see this because this is, this is how battle is engaged. Godly desires use truth. Okay? They focus on the truth. And you know what happens? It's, it's, it's so beautiful how these, these marry up. In Ephesians 2.10, it, it says this, that He saved us for good works that He prepared in advance that we might walk in those works, right? So he, he not only gives us a new nature, and we sung about that in the last song, a beautiful song. I was struggling a little bit. I, the first time I sang it, so I um, wasn't tracking as well as I could have, but beautiful lyrics were new creation, right? New desires, right? He gives us a desire for truth instead of desires for falsehood. And He uses the truth to shape us. And then there's even good works that He's prepared in advance that we get to walk in as believers. And what happens when we have the truth, right? When the truth is in our hearts, we see opportunity. God gives us vision to look out and see the opportunities. And when truth meets those good works, they conceive. And they give birth to something that's awesome. It's this. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Godly desires, when met with godly works, give birth. And we've already seen the damage that comes from the evil lusts. From engaging temptation that gives birth to sin. And we saw this in Ammon's example, right? And we saw it last week in the example of David. And if you ever want to see what this looks like, if you ever want to see what the consequences of sin look like and what the spiritual death looked like and how, how horrific, horrific it was for King David, just go to Psalm 32. Psalm 51, right? Despairing. Didn't even have the joy of his salvation, right? He was... Um, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And his vitality drained from him like in the fever heat of summer. Right? Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Powerful. Dehydrated. Weak. Physical consequences. Spiritual consequences. Well, this is where our hearts get to be engaged and encouraged. On the flip side, godly truths or godly desires... When they conceive, they give birth, right? With good works, they give birth to God's glory. 
His truth helps us and moves us forward. And this is important. I want to share this too. We also have to rewind the game film here a little bit, okay? Let me, let me tell you why. Because the, the, these, are, these are great things, amen? And all God's people said amen, all right? Hallelujah. These are, these are, these are great things. But this, this is vital. This right here. Godly motivations, biblical motivations, the truth about why we want to do those things, right? And it's not about receiving the approval of anyone else but the Lord, right? And we, this, is, this is so, so important. Because if godly desires aren't the reason that compel us to engage in good works, then we can simply find ourselves seeking the merit, seeking the approval, seeking the recognition of men. Or worse yet, the approval of ourselves. And that's man-pleasing 101. And we can all, we can all struggle with that. And God provides the answer for it right here, right now. Godly desires and passion fueled by the truth and instruction is what allows us to engage in those good works and, and give Him glory. And Titus 2.14 says it this way, Christ redeems us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And the word zealous in this verse can be translated enthusiastic, totally committed to. God's Word sanctifies, it positions us, it gives us those desires. And Jesus even prayed this for the disciples. Father, sanctify them with truth. Your Word is truth. And the Word working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit fuels us as disciples to engage in good works. And we saw this lived out even how it had an impact after Pentecost and the good works that the disciples went on to do. Well, we just read Titus 2.14 and Titus 3.14. One cha- That's how I remember these passages because it's just exactly a chapter later. It's like, you ever notice John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16? Okay, you can look that one up later. We won't mess with that now. But Titus 3.14 says this. Paul, Paul writes, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Let them learn. Hmm, interesting. Learn to, do, learn to devote themselves, right? To have the, the, the devotion. They come out of a heart of devotion, right? To do those things. It's powerful. It's powerful. Again, we see how godly truths from godly instruction unite with good works. And of course, it gives birth to God's glory. And if you really want to see how doctrine fuels a desire for good works, I want to encourage you to spend some time reading the book of Titus. It does such a great job. The book of Titus would be a a great... um, a reflection. And I also want to talk about a resource. Um, I don't know, some of the care group leaders have seen these. We have a growth sheet that comes and it's connected every Sunday from the sermon. There's going to be a sheet that you'll have access to. Um, the admin team is making it available online. Um, you're also going to receive it by email a few times over the next couple of weeks. And it's just an opportunity for us to engage in the application. And so 
Um, it will be something that you can take as a devotion. It'll be something that, if, hey, if you're meeting somebody who doesn't even go to our church, you can use it as a discipleship a resource. It will have application questions on there. It will have transparency questions. It will have scripture uh, memorization for you. We love some good scripture memorization in this church. But we, 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 this is the Spirit-filled life, right? Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, right? It's got to dwell from within. And when we do battle at the heart level, we need to be able to access those verses. I talked about it. Philippians 4.8 is money for me. It's money. Finally, brethren, whether it's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is good, whatever is uh, pure, whatever is lovely, good repute, whatever is excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things, right? God, because things come into my mind, right? They come into all of our minds. Impurities come into my mind. You've got to grab something and pull it to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13, brought that up last week. Powerful, powerful scriptures. Your speech, maybe your speech, you're struggling with how you're talking and communicating with people. Ephesians 4.29, you've got to grab it and you've got to own it. James 3, 1 to 10, we're, we're armed. We have these passages so that we can have victory and that we can reveal God's glory. Our study today shows internal battles that produce external testimonies. And our verse ends with this purpose statement, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And Christians, during the time of this letter, were getting falsely accused and slandered for all kinds of things. They were being blamed for rebelling against the government. They were being blamed because they were cannibals of cannibalism, because people misunderstood what the Lord's Supper was. And so there was even a connection. They wouldn't bow down. They wouldn't worship Caesar or Roman gods, and so they were accused of being atheists. They were known for opposing slavery, imposing a threat to the empire's economic and social progress. And this is just the short list of why they were being slandered, or your translation might say accused or maligned. And naturally, these fleshly and vile attacks from surrounding pagans put them in very vulnerable positions. And God used Peter to help them engage in battle on the inside so that they could reveal God's glory on the outside. And God didn't want them to respond, nor does He want us to respond with evil. He wanted them to follow the example of their Savior and to give glory to Him. What does this mean, that they'll glorify God in the day of visitation? I was intrigued by this in my study, and I found a, a commentator who I, I really... It was so interesting because I'm like read commentaries and I, and I was like, and I, I'm a master's guy, so of course I check out, we'll see what Dr. MacArthur says, right, initially. And, and then um, read, and I found this commentator who just nails this and, and, and then I couldn't remember who it was. <laughs> so don't ask me how to start. Hey, who was that commentator who talked about the glory of David? I'll have to track it down for you. But he, he says this, on this day of visitation, the unbelievers who are currently slandering Christians will glorify God. This glorification is almost certainly the praise of people who have been converted and not the forced acknowledgement by unbelievers that God has been right. The verb glorify occurs 61 times in the New Testament, but it is never used to speak of unbelievers who are forced unwillingly to admit that God or his people are right. They are converted and glorify God because they have been drawn by God to see your good deeds. 
Peter gives an example of this in 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 and 2, where he says that husbands may be converted when they see the gospel conduct of their Christian wives. Christians living in an unbelieving society must avoid, and he says it again, must avoid sinful desires and continually strive to maintain exemplary patterns of life so that unbelievers will be saved and God will be glorified. There is no reason to doubt that such a strategy of evangelism would still work today. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, our internal battles produce external testimonies. God wants us to engage in battle on the inside. God also wants us to reveal His glory on the outside. Pray with me. Father, You are so good and we just thank You for the instruction that we have received from these two verses that allow us to see the tactical strategy and battle that You would have us engage. That we would be willing to dig deep into the chambers and the recesses of our own heart. And Father, in Your goodness, that You would allow Your Word in such a way, that Your Spirit would move in such a way in our lives that we would constantly be filled up with that truth. And that our hearts could be so filled with truth that there would be no space, there would be no room for the lust that You've called us to mortify, to take root there. They would be so filled that it would squeeze them out, that it would literally distance us from those lies, and those deceptions. And Father, we're sinful. And we're in great need. And so we ask specifically for this passage to encourage us to pick up our weapons, to make sure that we do put on the spiritual armor that's mapped out for us in Ephesians 6. That we would acknowledge You daily and our need for Your truth to prevail And Father, when we find ourselves in our marriages, in our workplace, in our friendships, and a battle starting, and those lies starting to surface, would You by Your Spirit remind us and lead us to those passages that will help us to wage war and to fight back against those lies? Give us minds that recall. Help us to remember. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not trusted in Christ completely for salvation, that today would be the day of salvation. That they wouldn't be caught up like this world. And as Your Word says, woe to them who call evil good and good evil. It breaks our heart and yet at the same time, it also gives us a sense of urgency that we need to have with the Gospel in our city. This is right here before us. So Lord, thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We pray that it would produce fruit and that we would, in the end, be people described in 1 Peter 2.12, being excellent in our behavior and being zealous as Titus 2.14 taught us. Zealous for good works so that You can be glorified. We ask You to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.